You're listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience, a podcast dedicated to helping executives train their sales and marketing teams to optimize growth. Whether you're looking for techniques and strategies or tools and resources, you've come to the right place. Let's accelerate your growth in three, two, one. Welcome, everyone, to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. I'm your host, Chad Sanderson. So today, it's going to be all about effective prospecting, topic near and dear to my heart, one many individual reps struggle with. doesn't matter if you're an SDR or a BDR, an account exec, anybody that has revenue responsibility that has to find and feed the top of the funnel. One of the top challenges sales executives cite when asked what's getting in the way of them hitting their growth goals. But how do we do it effectively in a manner that allows for repeatability, scalability, and the all-important personalization. Today, we're going to tackle this with Jeremy Donovan, SVP of Sales Strategy at SalesLoft. Jeremy, thank you for taking time to be on the show. Yeah, Chad, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So we always like to start with kind of one oddball question, just to give the audience a better understanding of you as an individual. And this, uh, this cycle, I've kind of changed it to if you know, a lot of people will know you from work or, or your thought leadership and things like that. I'm kind of curious, is there a passion or something that you do outside of work that those that do know you only in a work setting might be surprised to learn about? I have a lot of hobbies. Uh, the people at work do know that I'm an animal lover, so they've already got that down. I, I think the, peop- the thing that people would be most surprised to learn about me is that I, I learned how to weave Navajo-style rugs on a vertical loom years ago. So that's my most wow. esoteric hobby. That's pretty esoteric. I have, that's not one I've heard before. <laughs> I, most people have not, no. And it was a very random. And I, I learned it by watching... This is, I guess it was pre... Well, there might have been some stuff on YouTube, but I got a DVD and I, and I learned by watching the DVD. And it was it just a um, random thing that caught your attention, or I, I, I got to know more. Yeah, I, I, it was it was not a hundred percent random, but mostly random. It was I was moving into a new place and needed floor coverings. <laughs> went went shopping and realized, oh my god, rugs are expensive. And I thought, okay, maybe I can create them on my own. And I didn't certainly did not manage to cover all my floors. It's extremely time consuming, even though we have a pretty small rug. But uh, but that was the genesis of it. And it's very. I have a I have an engineering background originally before I moved into marketing and sales. And it's a very kind of rhythmic thing. That's quite. I mean, it's not. It's you you, you use a graph paper to basically do it. So there's there's a bit of that mathematical thing in there, but it's also a very relaxing, hypnotic sort of thing to do as well. Finding the inner Zen. I love it. It, okay. is, it definitely is. It's meditative. Yeah, meditative. I understand that. Excellent. All right. So how about just uh, for those that aren't familiar with you or SalesLoft, how about just kind of a little background on SalesLoft and your role there? Yeah. So high level is, without sounding too marketing speaky, <laughs> uh, it's, uh, we, we're in the sales engagement space, which basically means when salespeople want to engage often prospects, but it could be existing customers, to try to win the right to spend time with them via they're going to engage them via phone and email, social media, maybe direct mail, what have you. So they're going to engage those folks. And in the old days, people would keep track of how many touches you did over what channel in on a piece of paper in a notebook or maybe in a spreadsheet. But we're in a class of companies where we allow you to to basically load those workflows into a system, and then it just it just automatically reminds you to to do those things. So that's that's what we do. Auto magic. Yeah, Auto it's magic. one of my more favorite. Uh, more favorite, if that's good. Grammar, <laughs> I guess, but it's one of my favorite favorite expressions. Uh, is, well, I mean, technology is a huge enabler, right? And that's for you know, sure. getting more and more complex today, especially with all the channels that salespeople have at their disposal, or even marketing people have at their disposal to capture attention, earn that right. So, tracking is definitely a challenge. 
for people. So when we when we think about that engagement spot, right? And we know, we all know whether salespeople want to admit it or not. Everybody knows they're supposed to be relentlessly prospecting. Now the number of them who actually do it's probably another podcast and another debate. Yeah. <laughs> but we all know that we need to be doing it. And so I'm curious when you talk to clients or, or you know you have the opportunity to work with some some of the up and coming brands and big names in the space that have B two B sales teams. What do you see as the biggest challenges that they're having? Yeah, so I mean, I I guess I was I was cut from the cloth or had, had the advantage of working for a bunch of people who used to work for management consulting firms, although I never did. And they they taught me that most things, right? A strategy is people, process, and technology. So I, I mean, interestingly, even though my company sells a technology solution, just because they, they, these technology solutions are so ubiquitous, right? If you look at any of those those great logo graphic things that have hundreds of sales and marketing technologies all crunched together with all the logos on there. <laughs> the MarTech 5000. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a, there's a, an embarrassment of riches on technology. So I, I rarely think that people have a technology problem because they just have such great access to it. I think they often have people and process problems. And, and that's really what I see. So on the, on the process side, I think it really is the lack of, of well-defined processes all through the funnel, right? From the top of the funnel all the way through. Right. And we could go obviously deeper into that. And then the people side, I think one of the big epiphanies I've had is particularly in sales development. I mean, I have I have done every configuration of comp structure, of work <laughs> structure, of cadence design, like every combination imaginable. And what it comes down to is simply activity. It's a really hard thing for me to say because you know, I know when I was in my twenties, I wouldn't have wanted to be managed this way. But it really comes down to are you hitting the minimum activity level at the end of at the end of every day, day after day? That that I think is actually the biggest challenge people have in filling their funnel. Well, there's a I mean, and, and that gets into a great um kind of point. And I know everybody who's listened to this before knows I provide the questions and then I go way off script. That's so, <laughs> so when when you think about it. The technology, I really like that perspective. It's not a technology problem because, I mean, they call it the MarTech 5000. I think there's, what, 6,700 plus companies in that. And, right and it seems like it's growing every day. As every long day. As in fact, there were two founded in the time that you and I have been talking. Probably. Right? And so, the, I mean, the, the technology is there. And I think a lot of companies have a tendency to sit back and think, okay, well, I have this tech uh, solution, so that's going to solve all my problems. But when in actuality... You can't have a single kind of a single line of attack when you're trying to enable sales individuals. You have to have the tech, but also the ways to incent the behaviors and a definition of what those behaviors are and the process to support it and measure it. And I think there's a lot that that struggle with that. And it sounds like you're seeing the same thing. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make, I mean, sales professionals, marketing professionals make, especially leaders make, is that they... They think that if they buy the technology, they will solve the problem. And it, that, that is very much the least of it, right? And, and I think that gets at how you think about... It, it gets at something that is near and dear to my heart, which is how do you differentiate in a highly competitive market? Sure. I, this will be way off script, but if I can go there for a second, yeah, that might please. be... As I reflect on my own career, right? I worked originally for a semiconductor company. We had an arch rival... I worked for uh, Gartner for a very long time. We had, you know, Forrester and others as arch rivals, and then I worked for a couple of other companies. And we there was always at least one arch rival, and, and it was always I was always thinking about, you know, if only the arch rival didn't exist. But it's it's never that easy. <laughs> I read a, a really good book recently 
called sales differentiation. I don't know if you've talked to the author. I think his name is Lee Sauls, S-A-L-Z. And he talks about four levels of differentiation. And the first level is is on features and functionality, right? That your rep and my rep are both going to say, or sorry, your rep and the competitor's rep are both going to say we have the best features and functionality, but it's it's largely the same. Your rep, then the next level is on customer success and implementation, right? The reps are going to make those same claims. Sure. The next level is on ROI and references. And, you know, they're both going to have the same ROI calculator or they're both going to have great references. And it's that fourth level of differentiation that really matters. And this will tie it back to the whole people process and technology thing, which is the fourth level is, is that you, you are able to prove during the sales process that you're the right person to help them solve their hopefully immediate and then midterm business problems. And that's a show don't tell sort of thing. Right. But as, as it pertains to technology, right? If, if I'm a company that, that sells a SaaS solution, a technology solution, a big part of the proof is to actually spend the time to understand what their processes are and give them actionable advice on how they can optimize those processes or take the time to understand what their kind of people considerations are, comp structures, organizational structure, and so on, and take the time during the pre-sale process to optimize those things. And it's if you do those, if you do those things, you're creating real value that differentiates you from the competitor. And it's such a subtle shift, right? We spend a lot of time with our with our clients just on that. And I, I know Saul's. I haven't talked to him specifically about the book, but those four areas. Uh, I think from from my perspective, the thing that I would kind of tweak is the best differentiation I've seen is when the sales rep in the sales process, to your point, actually has the ability to uncover what it is that the buyer is looking for from the buyer's perspective, and then connect to those. And it takes asking more questions. And to your point, the show don't tell or ask don't tell, right? Like here's, here's, you know, let me ask the questions on what your perspective on your problem is. No matter how many years you spent in the tech space, no matter how many times you've heard the same story and everybody tells you it's unique, it's still Disney, right? We all know how it's going to end. So let's take the time to really understand that buyer's perspective. And I think especially in the MarTech space today, that level of competition, man, if you only had one nemesis, that'd be great. I, yeah. I mean, you're competing against you know thousands of people just for mindshare as well as budget. And I think that gets a little bit challenging. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. And I was reflecting, you know, we, we, when you have one arch rival, you feel so frustrated by them. Uh, and them, I'm sure by you, <laughs> I, I have been at least at one company in my career where there was, yeah, it was basically, you know, 500 or a thousand or more or whatever competitors. It was effectively competing in a commodity space. And, and that's, that is the real challenge to, for how do you break through in that particular world? Yeah. And I love it when, uh, when everyone's like, Oh, we're commoditized. I'm like, you guys are not, like, you're not selling paper cups. Like you want to talk right. commodity. Paper cups is commoditized. Yeah, yeah. It's like we still have the ability to have some pretty important business conversations uh, with the technology that you guys are bringing to market. So it's it's always interesting to me. The technology, I'm I'm a huge tech freak. I love the cadence tools that are out there. I'm very familiar with SalesLoft as well as some of your competitors. And to me, it's uh, look, you guys are given you're given the keys to the kingdom. All you have to do is turn them on. Just turn it on, and that requires you to actually take action. Yep. And consistently get better at using what those things are bringing to you. And with the stats today, I mean, the last ones I saw was what 15 to 17 touches across 22 to 24 business days to increase the probability of connecting or having a conversation. I mean, that's depending on what kind of scale you're doing. You need tools to manage that. Nobody's going to remember all that or stay on top of it. 
It's impossible. Yeah. I mean, I, I think beyond even two or three touches, right? And that's why before these tools existed, people would just do, you know, they make a phone call. They, they send an email, they make a phone call, and that was basically it. Right. They didn't answer. They're not interested. Yeah. And then the, even with the tools, by the way, I mean, people, people find reasons to give up, right? I mean, they, it's not that common that people will really execute through, you know, all their cadences all the way before, before they see a squirrel and start running after it in some other right. direction. Right. And well, and it's, I mean, then there's the added complexity of, you know, if, if it was just phone and email, that's only two channels, but you've got six, seven, eight channels you can use today. The ch- the next challenge becomes how do you think kind of spatially in order to strategically choreograph those cadences so you're providing the right things at the right times in the right way? That takes it to a whole nother level of complexity as well as challenges for managers and leaders to track. Yeah, right. And that is a big piece, right? Is is the analytics to to understand what you're actually doing and what's and what's effective, right? You know, this it ties a lot to personalization, which is we're we're constantly doing tons and tons of data science, looking at you know at least millions, if not hundreds of millions of of interactions between prospects to figure out what works. And you know, on the personalization side, I love this logical transition to that, but we found that. If and when, sort of obvious, I guess, but if and when you personalize your your engagement, you have dramatically higher probability that someone's going to, you know, reply and that you'll generate an opportunity. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, I I can use myself as an example. I mean, I I won't name them on the podcast, but there's one company that has been bombarding me with emails because I made the mistake downloading the white paper, <laughs> and and we're at email as of this morning, we're at email thirty one. And it's from the same young lady and it's got the same thing in the subject line or at least a, a telltale in the subject line so I know who it's coming from. I can tell it's automated. Mm. I know there has been no personalization. And the first line is always, hey, you didn't respond to my last email. No, I, no, correction. I didn't respond to your last 100 emails. Yeah. Because they were all change horrible. The, changing the subject line at all or it's all re, 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 it's, re, re? It's, well, they'll change, there's one, the name of the company shows up in the subject line. And it's always in the subject line. They may change some of the other words, but I don't even, I'll be honest, I don't even read the subject line anymore. I, once I see the yeah. company name, I just delete it. Right? I mean, you, you got something super important, right? Which is the concept of the pattern interrupt. Right. Right. Is, is that variety is important. And we see that variety thing in all, in all kinds of areas, right? And the pattern interrupt is definitely present. It's, it's most commonly people think of the pattern interrupt for phone calls. Right. Right. Which is like, like, are you having a good day versus are you having a bad, you know, like, right. Just switching things around and something that's not expected, or hey, how you doing? Like, don't don't say that anymore, right? <laughs> right. So, Nobody cares. <laughs> yeah. So there was one actually. I'm a big fan of the research that Chris Orlob does oh, over I at Love Gong. Gong. Love the guys at Gong. Yeah, yeah. I, I Chris spoke at our conference recently. I came up to him and he's probably 20 years younger than me. And I was bowing down to him because I thought <laughs> I literally I just because I thought it'd be fun. I literally bowed down to him because I, I think his stuff is so good. But he put out some research that, that said um, rather than saying, how are you doing? You say, how have you been? Which is which is a pattern interrupt, right? Because you don't expect that when somebody calls you basically cold, cold engagement, right? Cold call. Right. You don't expect that, but and and yet it 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 has been proven in all those gong call recordings to have worked. So it's it's the pattern interrupt, and yeah, you see that in the calls, you see that in emails, and I think not just the emails, but also the the spacing of the emails. Like if that if that person was emailing you whatever every other day, and then always including their company name in the subject line, 
then you're just going to get numb to it as you described. But if it, one of the things that we've seen is you basically want to spread out your touches. Right. So when we design cadences, we will put touch, you know, we'll do, we usually do pairs of touches. We do double tap, we call it double taps or double touches. So we'll do two on day one, two on day three, two on day six, you know, we're like adding a day each time. Right. So that adding the day makes it, makes it a bit more unexpected. Sidebar, by the way, is that having your own company name in an email subject line does have a much, much higher reply rate. So that's a really a good best practice, but not if you do it every single time. Interesting. I, so I, now look, I can tell you, I mean, I can tell you to, to, to the whole, to the whole, like capture my attention, you know, earn the right. They definitely haven't earned the right. Well, I'll tell you what, I know who that company is. And I'll be honest, I've gone and looked because I mean, we teach, you know, you guys, you guys handle the technology side of the prospecting we handle and, and work with the human side. So we yep. teach them how to do this. It's part of what we do. So of course, anybody who sends me crap email like that, they become a prospect. <laughs> so, so I've gone and looked at the website to see if it's somebody I want to try and do business with, but I have not engaged. And they, here's the crappy thing. They have something that I could use. And I know it's something that I can use, but simply because I'm in the space, I'm probably not your average bear. Like, I'm annoyed that you're sending me crap. Like, come on, like, earn the right, earn the right to have my time. I'm extremely busy. And if you keep doing it like this, you know, it's not going to work. But to your point, I do know the name of the company and that I can't say that for everybody who emails me. Um, yeah, I guess it helps that they're a prospect for you as well. And you filled, you know, you filled something out. On that note, by the way, we routinely go and hit people's request a demo page. And then we benchmark, because this is like part of that thing I was talking about differentiating yourself during the sales process. Right. We then benchmark how basically what their cadence looks like on the on the back end. How long did it take them to respond? When they do respond, is it personalized or is it not personalized? When do they make phone calls? Do they do social touches? Right. So we we secret shopper them. If I've turned a, a noun into a verb or whatever. <laughs> yeah, no, I love it. And, and then we deliver back to them like a hopefully insightful set of recommendations based on where you know, benchmarks as well as recommendations on how they can optimize their, their inbound response. Nice. I mean, it's something that people, I have a thing, I, I've seen it too many times. They set and forget. Yeah. And they think that, okay, I designed this cadence and I put in maybe a few cycles to actually think through it, to try and get strategic on how I effectively can, you know, connect all of these touch points in a way that's going to provide value to the individual is going to earn that right. And then they think they're done. And it's like, you look, you got to test. You got you to test. You got to tweak. It is a process and a journey. Prospecting is not a set and forget. People just, you know, they get used to one channel. You got to go after them a different channel. And you got to get creative and you've got to make it about them. It can't really just be about you. I totally, yeah, I totally agree. And, and things that work, the things that are working now, right, stop working. Sure. So, so, I mean, it was, there was a time where putting the person's first name in the subject line was super effective. And now we found that that actually decreases response rates by about 12%. So, but, but there was a time where it boosted tremendously. So, right. These things, as you said, I mean, you got to constantly be creative. You got to constantly be A-B testing. You know, we're starting to hear, and it, it rears its head every couple of years, the return of direct mail, right? Write a handwritten note to somebody or send them send them something creative in a you know dimensional direct mail not a flat envelope but something you know you can i think the post office has has an obligation to deliver anything so I, someone told me about sending a coconut through the mail <laughs> like with an address on it so you got to get creative 
Yeah. I mean, and that's really what it is. It's an opportunity. You know, I've met some, you know, SDRs or even, even salespeople that take their prospecting seriously. And the ones that I see be the most successful have two things and tell me and add to this, please, or, yeah, or go for it. Or come back at it. But one of them is, is an insatiable creativity and curiosity. And maybe those are two things, but the two C's, creativity and curiosity. They genuinely want to find people that have problems they can help. They're curious about the problems that those people have, right? And, and they're not afraid to do the work. They're not afraid. They understand that, that they have to earn the right. They Not lip service. Like they genuinely get that they, they have to earn the right and they have to demonstrate you know, demonstrate that they have something that is worth the other individual's time. And without that, I see a lot of struggle. I mean, it's unfortunate. Some organizations see SDRs as kind of the burn and churn part of the organization, which is unfortunate. It should be the feeder for your... It is. The, yeah. That, that, all, a lot of the ROI is in the feeder part. But yeah, I'm with you. And it, and it's like, why why aren't we doing more to stoke that? I mean, you guys have... Tools like yours, tools like SalesLoft provide the perfect support for or platform, let's say, for that type of curiosity uh, and, and that effort, that grid, that grind to do it, to do it consistently, to learn from it, to stay on top of it and know that, look, what's working now, like to your point about direct mail, I, I can attest for me right now, direct mail's got the highest response rate in any of our cadences. It takes more time. Because you do yeah. have to be creative, but the you get back to the quantity versus quality aspect of it. And I'm curious if there's traits or behaviors you've seen in SDR, and I and I know they can kind of be two different animals, but SDRs or account executives, kind of traits or behaviors you've seen that make them more effective at the prospecting game. Yeah, I, I, it's it's no, it's no fun when two people just agree with each other all the time. But I guess I can <laughs> I can agree with you and add add to it. So I, I think the, I I totally agree on the curiosity piece, and I, and I'll say why. And I think it it's yes, it is about in being able to engage prospects effectively to listen in an authentic way and and understand what their true needs are without trying to ram something down their throat. I think there's another reason curiosity is so important. It, particularly for SDRs, which is, it is the hardest, most soul-sucking probably job on the planet in sales, <laughs> at least, but maybe in other ways, because right, I mean, you're calling, you know, you're calling 50, 60, 70 times a day. You're sending email after email after email. You're going all over LinkedIn, like you're you got to hustle, and then maybe and people just hang up on you or send you nasty grams and, and maybe you get, rejection. You know, if you get one meeting that that's your quota. And if you get two in a day, that's like great. You know, the, the, the sky opens up and the sunbeams come through. <laughs> so, so like, it's such a hard job. And, and I, but I think the curious, and I've noticed this in the SDRs that I've worked with over, over the years that the ones that make it are curious, right? They go in every day saying, Hey, you know what? I'm going to try, you know, instead of, is this a good time to call? I'm going to try, is this a bad time to call? Like, I'm just going to test something every day and, and that that they get fulfillment from from that learning experience, from that curiosity about how humans react to, to different approaches. Sure. So I, I'm with you on that. The other one, I mean, it's probably embedded in the grit thing that you talked about because I think grit is is perseverance and combined with passion. Oh, I like um, that. Yeah, and that's better than grit. I mean, grit's kind of well, old school, but well, that, I mean, that, I think that's the definition of grit. Like the academics, when they talk about grit, they decompose it into into perseverance and passion for long term goals. Um, I yeah, I read well, too much academic literature, by the way. So <laughs> no, it's great. But I, I think the other thing, yeah, is 
it's probably on the persistence side that this is a big epiphany. I think I talked to you about earlier, right? Which I had, which is like, you can make all these changes, but the thing that matters is activity. We started off with that. Yep. It takes like, you got to have the perseverance to grind, you know, which basically is, is that right. And those SDRs who do that are the, are the most successful. We had, we just had a person who he was the fat. We have a really awesome way that we uh, handle promotions which is as soon as people source a certain number of opportunities, they are eligible for promotion. And because we're growing so fast, that means they basically get promoted no matter what. So this person, like most people hit, hit that in 18 months. That's the average. This person hit it, in, I think, between 11 and 12 months. And wow. He was the fastest ever to hit it and, and you know, very happily promoted and celebrated. And I would say that this guy just like has grit coming out of his ears. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and I think that's a great way. I mean, from an incentive, like the, the challenge with the human aspect of it, especially because the SDR job can at times be so soul sucking. I think setting a goal, like you, people, I think people struggle. You've probably seen this too. Set a goal for if you yep. set this many opportunities, here is the outcome. I think that helps for some of the generational challenges that there are in management now. Uh, but it's a really clear path, and that's a. I think it's a beautiful and elegant way. To address that. So, hey guys, here's the goal. You can get there. If you want to do it faster, look, it's possible. You just got to put in the work. And that I think helps instill some of that. But there are, there are a lot more, unfortunately, that wash out, that just get to a point where they're like, I can't do this anymore. (laughs) They just don't come back. I was talking with our, our HR team about that today and just about how miserable it is that if you don't succeed as an SDR in the organization you're at, we basically have two options. You're going to go somewhere else and you're going to have to be an SDR again and you're going to have to put in your whole 18 months all over again or you change jobs completely out of sales. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think people who lead SDR teams really have an obligation to lead their SDRs and help them build build habits that make them successful because otherwise it really is, a, you know, it's... The good news is the economy is amazing. They can just walk out in the street and get another job. But I mean, the bad news, they got to, that, that it's not going to be as... It's a reset. It's a reset. I mean, it's, it's yeah. almost like, I, I mean, I've, you know, I've, I've done both over the course of my career. I'm, you know, I, I joke, I, I remember when phones had cords and people actually used paper. <laughs> I uh, remember when, when, when you had to have a rotary on their phone also. Oh yeah. 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 I mean, oh, we had one of those in the basement, man. I love that. I love the sound of it. <laughs> I, and I'm honestly, I miss it. They're, they haven't been able to recreate that on my, on my iPhone yet. Like I would love to have an app that actually had that. I, I'm sure. I, I, I once heard a speaker, I think it was, I want to say it was this guy, Kevin Knebel. He was really good. I'm pretty sure it was him. And he, he had like a, a, a regular phone you could plug into your iPhone. I've seen that. <laughs> I've seen that. I travel so much. It's a pain in the butt to carry. I'd have to assume though. <laughs> Um, so, but when you look at people, like if you think about account reps, like when I was in back, when I was an individual contributor and when I was running teams, I would see it all the time. People that had been in the sales game, not even SDRs. This is probably before we were actually calling them SDRs or BDRs. People that would come in account execs. It was a, look, it was a reset. I don't care what your Rolodex was. Like it's a reset. You should expect somewhere between six, nine, 12 months before we start, depending on how complex of an enterprise sale it is before you start to generate revenue. And even some of the account execs that had been doing it for a while would struggle with that first because that's where you see the grit. That's where you see, are you going to start doing back to basics in order to fill the top of the funnel? To see an SDR walk out and have 18 months to do it again, oh man, I I feel for them. I feel for them. If you find the right organization today, stick with it, do the work, the payoff's there. Yeah, you know what's interesting? I also, I'm always, because I'm so data-driven, I'll 
sort of trust advice, but only so far, or gut instinct, I guess, but only so far. So I recently pulled everyone who had ever worked as an SDR at Salesforce. And there were, I think, 1,600 of them. And then I pulled whether or not... I, I, my measure of success was whether they got promoted from SDR to AE at Salesforce, right? Because I think that's a... I mean, you could, there's lots of different measures of success, but that seemed like a reasonable one. Sure. And then I... I um, they, well, I didn't do this myself. I had Upwork. I outsourced to Upwork to basically collect all the biographical data on those people. And then tried to figure out what, what if anything, is predictive of success for an SDR. And, and to the point of what we've just been talking about, interestingly, people who were SDRs who came into Salesforce as SDRs had a much lower success probability than people who you know, were not. And among the people who were actually the best at the SDR job was very much this reset concept. It was people who were, they were AEs before, but maybe they were selling something that was a little bit more transactional or something that was a bit of a lower price point or less marquee compared to Salesforce. And those were the most successful people, right? They had built, you know, they sort of seen the other side and built some of those skills, but the, but they, you know, they came in, you know, quite surprisingly as, as SDRs at Salesforce reset a bit and then off to the races after that. Interesting. So, well, I mean, I, I think that would probably go to kind of as I'm running it through my head, like an understanding of the macro, like let's understand the macro and everything that it takes to get from first contact through, you know, close or implementation, value realization, whatever you want to call it. Yep. So I understand that. I understand the field I'm on. I may not have been able to master it. I wasn't, you know, doing it with very large. I wasn't in the NFL, let's say. But, you know, but now I get the opportunity to go back and really focus on special teams and build my game with a more complete understanding of the totality of what's required for success. That's an extremely powerful concept. How many? Sixteen? You said sixteen hundred. Sixteen hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. They've had a lot of SDRs over the years. Yeah. Right. There's, it's, it's so funny, right? There's, there's certain brands that when we go and work with customers, whether they're in MarTech or even some actually are bleeding out of MarTech now, that you hear very similar names, right? Very similar brands. No, I was there. I worked there. Yeah. It kind of seems like everybody and every engagement I do, there's at least two or three from, you know, kind of the big four in the tech space. Yeah, I'm in New York, and and right now, people are all passing through some combination of LinkedIn, WeWork. Google, oh, yeah. but yeah, there's a certain there's certain brands around here where where uh, Yelp is another one where the, Yelp has just hired tremendous numbers of SDRs over time. Yeah, so, we see know. them go through Oracle, Salesforce. Um, those are the ones that have shown up the last two months. I've been on the road the most. Like every time we're training an SDR team, no, no, I came from Oracle and this is how we did it. Okay, well, were you successful? At Oracle? Right, right, right. Uh, no. Okay, so how about we just you know maybe give it a shot? Like let's just try something a little different, see if it's going to yeah. be successful. Totally, so, totally agree. Oh, by the way, one issue we danced around, the, I don't know if, you, if you want to come back to it, it was this whole concept of, of the, you know, the value that SDRs and or AEs tap into when, when they're first engaging, right? Sure. Like at what point, and, and it, well, the, reason, the reason I think it's sort of what we danced around it is, is challenger versus consultative selling, right? That's like one of the oh, classic questions. Oh, yeah. Now, now you're now you're in my backyard. <laughs> well, I just read some research, but I'd love to hear what your opinion is. I'll tell you what the research said. Go for it. I would love to hear uh, it. Uh, sure, sure. So it was it was uh, I read it last night. It was CSO Insights had surveyed 500 
I'm trying to pull this out of my memory banks, 500 B2B buyers and ask them, ask the buyers, when do you want to basically have the business value conversation? And they were effectively, although because I guess they compete with Challenger, they were it was they were it was kind of cryptic, but they were basically asking, "Do you want consultative selling or do you want Challenger selling?" And it was split right down the middle, which I I thought was interesting for for me personally. When I buy, I mean I buy a lot of stuff, and when I buy, I really dislike Challenger selling. Like I know what my problem is, and I probably. You know, you might have been at, you might have come in. I might have, I probably came in inbound, but let's say you, you happened to email me right while I was thinking about the problem. Then I'm going to reply and ask for a demo. But I still know I have that problem. I, I can't think of ever buying where someone came to me and said, Hey, you don't realize you have this problem. You really need to, to buy this and it's going to make you X, X amount of dollars. Yeah. And there's, man, there's a couple of things there I got. I just, I got to, I got to go into. So, so I'll give you my perspective. So, so we do, I mean, we are, you know, we do the value selling framework and it's, I know I get it. Everybody says, Oh, well, I've done value selling. No, you're talking little V, little less. I'm talking true value selling framework. There's a whole IP around it. Uh, it's more on the consultative side. Of, of the equation. However, it, it has built in the ability to provide insight without friction. And so if you look at some of the data that, that we've seen, I think it's something like less than 10% of B2B sales executives are capable of actually pulling off a challenger-like sale without risking rapport. Mm. And so... Trust and rapport. I mean, people buy from people that move them away from problems and towards solutions, right? At the end of the day, it's a, it's a trust game. So one of the people that have been, several of the people that have been through my class, through our classes, will tell us that, you know, some of the things you guys say sound very f- familiar because, you know, challenger phrases it like this or, or solution selling phrases it like this. But the difference is we would never suggest you risk rapport. Right, rapport and credibility. So with Challenger, I believe in insight, but I believe that becomes that comes down to enabling the sales rep to have a true framework. And we can go on a whole different tangent on whether or not I believe Challenger is actually a framework. But if they have a framework within which to operate, it's not. By the way, I would agree it's not a framework. Teach, tailor, and take control is not a framework. Right, (laughs) right, right. When you get to the take control part, and I mean, come on, like. There are there are some personalities that can pull it off, right? There are some that could sit in a room with SVP or higher of of Global One Thousand Company and be able to challenge the thinking that's across the table. However, when there are six thousand seven hundred and some odd Martech companies, and you're walking in, and the CEO or whoever you're talking to doesn't know you from Adam, yep, to go in and go straight for the throat. With that type of insight selling, I think it can be dangerous. Now, not to upset anybody who's listening who loves Challenger, we work with a lot of companies that have invested in Challenger. And the insight portion of it is critical. But that's more about how do I effectively educate myself on the person's perspective that I am getting ready to engage with so that I can provide them insight in a way that will be valuable to them and not risk the credibility, not risk yeah. the rapport. And so in the whole sales enablement space, and I think I probably said this on the podcast before, so I don't care if I say it again, that we call it sales R&D, right? So it's sales ripoff and duplicate. Okay. And so, so every framework that's out there, you're going to hear a lot of the same things. 
the thing that I, the reason that I, over my career, from an individual contributor when I was in marketing to individual contributor in sales to running teams, the reason I kept coming back to value selling and now I'm doing the value selling and the vortex prospecting stuff is because it isn't about what to do. It's about how do I do it? How do I understand the person that's sitting across the table from me? How do I prepare? How do I craft the questions? Don't tell me I need to craft the questions. We all know we need to craft them. But how do I do it in a repeatable, scalable way that allows these reps to be authentic? Yeah, I was just, you just said the word I had in my mind, which is how do you do it authentically? Absolutely. Right. And you need a framework that's going to allow the individual to shine through. And I think that becomes even more critical today with, with all of the investments we've seen in CX, you know, all of the design, like, hey, we designed this app so it was easy. And no, you designed the app so I would spend more time in it and spend more money <laughs> and believe that I felt good because I was being loyal. Like I get it because I sold that for 10 years. Like I know sure, sure. I, I know what that is. But at the end of the day, those CX expectations change what B2B buyers want. They want to be collaborated with. And funny enough, the um, if you were actually how long were you at Gartner? Oh, 16 years. So then you've been through our course. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, Julie Thomas used to walk the halls. Yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, okay. So I, yeah, I'm pretty well, I know the qualified prospect formula very, very well. Yeah, yeah okay. All right. Because when you said that, I'm like, I don't know if I should jump on that or not. Yeah, so yeah, you, yeah. I mean, you know what we're talking about. It's the authenticity. Part of that comes down to the implementation. But for me, when I work with organizations, it's like, look, guys, we don't want you to be rubber. We don't want you to be cookie cutters of each other. We want consistent sales motion to go back to Chris Orlob, right? All of his research shows that the thing that sets the organizations apart is consistent sales motion. It's not about the number of people. It's not about A players. Versus, it's just consistency. So here's a framework to do it that is actually tuned into the way an individual actually buys rather than the way you sell. And here's a way that you can bring you into it. And I think empowering people that way allows them to then more effectively to bring it home to more effectively prospect and reach out and understand value isn't what we think it is. It's probably more likely in the mind of the buyer and we need to uncover and connect to that. Yeah, it is. You need to uncover it. And by the way, I mean, to the point of like challenger and consultative, it's not an or, I think it's an and. Um, But I think it's a sequence thing, right? And to your point, like it's really, really hard to challenge and build rapport. So I think you build rapport with many things, but, but including the consultative selling to, to meet them where they are. And then once you've done that, then, right, you can, you can, it's almost like an upsell during the sales process, right? Like then you can find ways to, to increase the value that you can provide to them that maybe they didn't realize that they could, I don't know, uh, I wanted to use like a, some other example outside of sales or MarTech, but like someone might not have realized that they, if they had like these extra features or whatever, or these extra benefits, then they could get so much more out of it and they would actually get more ROI. So yeah, I'm totally with you. Or for, like, let's say in the world of, of sales training, right? Like they may not realize that, hey, we can also train your CS people and that's just as important, if not more important. That may not right. have been the problem they came in with and that might be the challenger part, but you, you earn that right after you've tackled their sales training piece. Yeah, and that's exactly what we see happen all the time. Is like you call us and you know, sales execs will call us to, hey, my sales reps don't know how to close or whatever, you know, whatever the challenge may be. And then once yeah. we get in, they realize what we're talking about. We're talking about the foundation of being able to consistently connect to another individual's perception of value and yes. move them through whatever process you need to move them through. So I have clients where we're training their data scientists, where we're training their development leads, you know, and it's just about how do I have a conversation and consistently and effectively listen, capture their perspective, take the appropriate actions to ensure it's a mutually beneficial outcome. 
Yeah. And you that's talk, by the way, lost yeah. skill, I think. I mean, you talked about process a bunch of times. You know, I steal a little something from you know from every methodology and every sure. every approach. And and the thing that I find most valuable in value selling QP formula is is the plan part of it. Oh yeah. And I've seen this as a buyer and I've seen this as a seller, right? That, that I'll take the buying side. A few years ago, I was buying incentive compensation management software. And there's a few vendors in that space. And like one of the vendors from the very inception of the sales cycle, once the op, you know, qualified op was generated, they put in front of me, here's our, our mutually agreed upon plan. And it had dates and timelines and who's going to do what and what order and you know, like they, they, it was a dynamic living document that kept sure. being updated, but that rep knew how to sell, right? And she knew what the steps should be. And some people would argue like that degree of rigor might be too much, right? That's the way they talk themselves out of it is like, what if the prospect is just ready to buy and I don't, I don't need to do all that? And maybe you can get a, maybe, maybe, I don't even know if I agree with this, you can get away with that in a super small organization, but in a larger organization where you need like faithful scalability, like, yeah, you do have to cookie cutter things a little bit. And you know that if you skip, I don't know, the executive introduction, right, between the peers at your organization and their organization, whatever the step is, that if you skip that step, the probability you're going to close a deal drops dramatically. Oh, yeah. You introduce risk. You introduce risk at every turn. I, and I just I literally had that same conversation with a client last week with a, actually a, an account exec that was in my club. Oh, they're ready to buy. Yeah, but you're not... like If it was just between the two of you, okay, maybe. But guess what? You have an implementation team. You have a customer success team. They have a security audit. Like you, It's not one-to-one buying anymore, especially in the enterprise. There's always multiple people involved. Implementation is always a challenge. The easiest man, that plan letter has made me... And I tell people in class, if you remember only one thing that comes out of my mouth, remember the plan letter. Yeah. That will make me more money. It's made me more money than anything else. Yeah. No one does it, by the way. It's so different. I mean, it's so differentiating if you have that. So even if your company doesn't do it, like you should do it as an agent. Oh, yeah. And we teach... It's funny because we teach... So on the Vortex side, when we do that, we teach the SDRs. Like, here's how you start it. Here's how you use that framework to do all the things that we've just been talking about. How do I provide insight, capture value? Like all of those things. How do you use you know, the, the value prompter? But then how do you present it in different, I don't want to say drafts, but let's say different life cycles of that plan letter. So then you have, the organization has a consistent perspective of that uh, prospect from first contact, first conversation, all the way through implementation and beyond. And we see that that drive the type of consistent behavior that I think is the challenge. I mean, you guys have amazing tech, the cadence management tools that are out there are are if people take the time to step into them, are great and a great benefit for those that are in organizations that have those or about to have those. And many of our customers are actually in the process of rolling out some of your tools or or other tools like that. So we see it a lot. If the SDRs step into it and then also understand they bring their own baggage and behavior to it, they can make a huge impact on the organization. Yeah, well, they're, they're, I mean, we, we came full circle of trust, right? Which is your SDRs are the are the first impression that you give people of your Absolutely. of of your. It's really your holistic customer experience, right? That that whether people are consciously or subconsciously thinking about it, every interaction that they have with you during the pre sale process, they extrapolate to what it's going to be like as a customer, 
right? And if you make it easy and if you make it valuable and if you show that you're authentic and listening, right, you build trust during that pre-sale process that makes them believe in the hopefully the right way that you're going to deliver on that later on. So yeah, we, I think we, we definitely brought it full circle. On <laughs> All right, cool. So let's pivot here and change the direction a little bit just to be respectful of your time, which I really appreciate. We ask all of our guests two standard questions at the end of each interview. And this is actually doubly important for you since the, the business that you're in. But we ask everybody, if somebody doesn't have a referral into you, they don't have a reputation, you don't know who they are, what have you found for yourself to be the most effective way for individuals, whether it be SDRs or account executives, to reach out to you, capture your attention and earn the right to have a conversation? Yeah, it's simply personalized engagement, right? So if, if somebody reaches out to me via, you know, I'm a big LinkedIn person, so people are welcome to connect with me on LinkedIn or an email. Well, this could be one of those two things. I don't even have a phone I actually use. <laughs> so so uh, if they reach out to me in one of those two ways, you know, just make it personalized. And I've got such a kind of big footprint out there that like I can't understand it when somebody just just as you described earlier sends me something that is generic. Right. Absolutely. All right. So perfect. If you were able to give people one piece of advice, whether it be SDRs or sales executives or consultants, one piece of advice that if you believe if they were to step into and utilize would actually help them achieve or crush their goals, what would it be and why? Hold yourself accountable to daily activity targets. Oh, I love it. You know, it's like the sad, it's the simplest, saddest thing, but you know, how many people actually make sure that they make 50, 60, 70 dials a day? Like who does that? even when you're working an opportunity, right? Because you, you don't want your pipeline to grow and shrink. So yeah, hold, hold your... Don't wait for your manager to do it, right? Hold yourself accountable every single day to, to some some target. Absolutely. Perfect. Jeremy, if the listener's interested, it sounds like LinkedIn and email, best way to get a hold of you? LinkedIn definitely is the best way. Uh, I'm, I'm all over LinkedIn. So uh, that that's connect with me, reach out to me, whatever whatever you want. All right. Excellent. I can't thank you again for the time today. This has been amazing. Yeah, it's been a blast. I love talking to folks who have uh, seeped in the steeped in the same books and uh, <laughs> and travels that I've been in. So it's been fun. Excellent. All right, everybody, that does it for this episode. Check us out at b2brevexec.com. Share the episode with friends, family, coworkers. If you like what you hear, do us a favor, leave us a review on iTunes. And until next time, we at Value Selling Associates wish you all nothing but the greatest success. You've been listening to the B2B Revenue Executive Experience. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show on iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.